This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, October 16th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellum. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, an effort to change the Buffalo National River to a national park. And when they got to the water management questions, I just called a halt because I was already struggling to answer given my concerns about park versus preserve. Plus, a fortune gained and given away. And they had began, they got the first contract to burn PCBs and other hazardous waste in, in the United States. Melvin Bell is our focus with Prior Center Archives this Monday. And what we might not know about voting. You know, not only do different states obviously have different regulations and rules, but also it's a different experience to physically go cast a ballot and uh, can be especially meaningful for people who are, are really appreciating that experience for the first time. First, though. This hour's news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering a variety of amenities and living options, including apartments, cottages, and village homes. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, October 16th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks again to everybody who helped us celebrate Member Appreciation Week last week. We certainly couldn't produce this kind of radio or bring you great shows like Fresh Air and All Things Considered without your participation and contribution. And ahead this hour, another sample of our conversation that took place at John Brown University last month. It was a conversation about voting and democracy recorded the night before a traveling Smithsonian exhibit opened on the JBU campus, also about voting and democracy. That exhibit remains open to the public through Friday, and part of our panel discussion from that night in our second half hour today. First today, there's been a coordinated effort to change the designation of the Buffalo National River. Some are pushing for it to become the Buffalo National Park. I'm joined by Ozarks at Large senior news producer Jacqueline Froelich to learn more. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. You began to receive emails and phone calls from concerned residents in the watershed in September. So who's behind this effort? It took a little digging, but Runway Group LLC in Bentonville came forward last week announcing their intention to, quote, support the Buffalo National River. And the group's founded by Walmart heirs and philanthropists Stuart and Tom Walton, Runway Invests in Outdoor Recreation, Real Estate, Art, and Hospitality. They hired Seltzer and Company to measure interest in the watershed in changing the status of the Buffalo National River, reaching 412 registered voters residing across five counties. And the Buffalo is the first designated national river in the United States, declared back in 1972. The 135-mile-long river is managed by the National Park Service. I contacted Runway Group, and a spokesperson, J.T. Guerin, directed me to a recently published statement on the company's website about conserving the river while maintaining access for hunting and fishing. But J. Ann Seltzer, who conducted the telephone survey, was more direct. She emailed that the goal is to gather feedback on shifting the buffalo's designation from a national river to a national park and preserve. Newton County farmer Beth Ardapple, a retired progressive political activist, was survey, surveyed by Seltzer and agreed to talk with me. I was asked a lot of questions about access to the river and, and hunting and fishing. You know, did I think it was all adequate? 
But then, if it were to be a national park and preserve, should concessions be grandfathered in? Should private land be taken for it? And when they got to the water management questions, I just called a halt because I was already struggling to answer given my concerns about park versus preserve and my annoyance that they assumed that I should understand that the Buffalo National River is not a park. I contacted the Buffalo National River Park Service headquarters in Harrison asking if staff support or are involved in changing the status of the park, and spokesperson Melissa Trenchick flatly said the Park Service had no part in the survey and has no plans to change the status of the Buffalo National River. Hmm. We can all agree that the Buffalo National River is a national treasure. Last year, it drew more than 1.3 million visitors from across the U.S. who spent nearly $65 million on outfitters, on food, short-term rental cabins, and cottages in the region. As you've reported, the watershed and water quality is closely monitored by the Park Service as well as fiercely protected by the nonprofit Buffalo River Watershed Alliance, which for now has declined to comment, you were told. So what's behind all this? So it appears there's a confluence of interests to transform Arkansas into a national recreational destination. That's Governor Sarah Sanders' agenda is to expand the state's recreational assets under her Natural State Initiative. And last January, she formed an advisory council chaired by her husband, Runway Group co-founder Tom Walton serves on that council. I contacted the governor's office to see if she supports or is behind efforts to change the status of the Buffalo National River. Spokesperson Alexa Henning only responded, saying the governor has had informal conversations with a member of Arkansas's congressional delegation. Hmm. That's telling because it will take an act of Congress to change the federal status of the Buffalo National River, to a national park and preserve, right? Right. I had to look this up because national park system designations vastly differ. National rivers, preserves, free-flowing streams, and surrounding environments limiting activities to hiking, canoeing, and hunting. But national preserves would also allow for permitted extraction of minerals and fuels, Mm. as well as certain real estate development. The status would also allow, and this is really interesting, management to be transferred to local or state authorities, in this case, the Sanders administration. Hmm. You queried two state lawmakers whose districts encompass areas of the Buffalo National River watershed, Senator Missy Irvin and Senator Brian King. As Senator Irvin did not reply, but has gone on the record saying many of her constituents oppose this change. What did you hear from Senator King? We spoke by phone. He says the Buffalo River is, quote, in the crosshairs. You know, this natural state committee has been formed. It seems like it's behind it. Uh, certain groups connected to the Waltons are, are driven towards what they think uh, the Buffalo National River and, and the area should go towards what their tourism and business model is. And it's concerning. Senator King describes the Seltzer survey as a push poll seeking a certain outcome. 
It apparently succeeded, according to data provided by Seltzer to us for this report. 61% of the 412 folks surveyed supported changing the Buffalo National River to a national park and preserve, which is an astonishing outcome. Right, because that doesn't jive with what you're seeing on online. Not at all. Many opposed changes to their beloved National River. It's also triggered locals who continue to hold a grudge about being displaced by the 1973 National River Declaration. I searched historical records and found that in 1968, nearly 100% of landholders in Newton County opposed turning the buffalo into a national river. I also saw a post about the intersection of wealth, philanthropy, and conservation regarding this matter of changing the river's status. So, what's next? Runway is soliciting the public to contact them to, quote, engage in a coalition to explore new ideas centered on preservation, quality of life, and economic vitality in its apparent effort to expand the federal status of the Buffalo National River. I also learned late last week that a town hall meeting to, quote, preserve the local heritage of the Ozarks and Buffalo River will be held at Carroll County Co-op in downtown Jasper Thursday, October 26th at 6 p.m. Now, a runway group spokesperson, I learned as well late last week, is expected to attend the town hall to assure residents that eminent domain declarations, the taking of private property, are off the table. I'll continue to follow this developing story. That's Ozarks at Large's reporter, Jacqueline Froelich. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you, Matthew. Talking about a river tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, but not that one. Okay. Arkansas River. It's the influence, a family history story about the Arkansas River and a tree on the river influence for Bonnie Montgomery's new single titled River. And I'm going to talk with Bonnie about the single and about her new album that comes out next month on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas River, I did not know this before I moved to Arkansas, uh, is unfortunately called something different. Don't get me started. Outside of Arkansas. No, 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 no. No, in Colorado, it's called the Arkansas. Okay. In Oklahoma, it's called the Arkansas. Right. In Arkansas, it's called the Arkansas. Right. So it's called the Arkansas everywhere outside of Kansas. Yeah. All right. Don't get me started. Okay. Well, (laughs) we'll hear more about the Arkansas River and music. That's on tomorrow. Still to come on today's Ozarks at Large, what do we not know about voting? We went back and forth. That did not pass out a committee, but it came back. You can bring your bill back if you want to and try it again. So they brought it back and tried again, and it passed out a committee. And then it got to the House floor, and then it was voted down. And they brought it back so that we could vote it out of the House and to the Senate. And guess what? It didn't pass. We'll hear another excerpt from a public discussion about voting and democracy that took place last month on the John Brown University campus to celebrate the opening of the temporary Smithsonian exhibition, Voices and Votes, Democracy in America. The exhibition is open to the public through Friday. We'll hear some comments from that panel discussion a little bit later this hour on Ozarks at Large. Many residents of Kibbutzbari lost their homes. Some lost entire families. It was like an apocalypse, like everything ruined, like with bodies lay around. How many people did you lose Uh, in your community? I think it's more than 100. How Israeli families reckon with the aftermath on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition tomorrow, beginning at 5.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. A new poll from Emerson College shows about 40% approval for Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders by Arkansans and about 18% approval for President Joe Biden. In that poll released yesterday, Governor Sanders holds a 66 approval among Republican voters, while independent voters are evenly divided. 33% approve, 33% disapprove of the job she is doing. Arkansas voters polled overwhelmingly with support for former President Donald Trump in a possible rematch with President Biden, 57 to 24 percent. The Arkansas General Election Survey is part of a 22-state study on the Midwest region and surrounding states conducted by Emerson College Polling. Arkansas's Team Ozark is headed to Cougar, South Africa this weekend to compete in the Adventure Race World Championship. Right up your alley, Kyle. Uh-huh. Yes, love those adventures. In an adventure race, competitors have nine days to trek, mountain bike, and paddle their way through almost 500 miles of difficult terrain. You lost me at difficult. <laughs> Jason Bettis is leading Team Ozark and helped direct Arkansas's first adventure race, Expedition Ozark, earlier this year. The event hosted teams from around the world. The top six teams from the United States, Estonia, Ecuador, Spain, Brazil, and France will all be in attendance at the World Championship this weekend. Edgar Award-winning author Kate Milford is visiting Fort Smith Wednesday and Thursday to speak with elementary and middle school students across seven different schools. The effort is led in part by Sarah Putman, owner of the independent bookstore Bookish. Putman says in a press release that it's a joy to bring an author like Milford into the community. She says experiences like these can make a lasting impression on students, spark creativity, and allow young people to connect what they are doing in their classrooms with the wider world. Milford is the author of Green Glass House, which was long listed for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 2014. The visit coincides with the promotion of her latest book, The Raconteur's Commonplace Book. Milford will be at Bookish for a meet and greet and a book signing on Wednesday night from 5.30 to 7. You can find out more details about the visit and the book signing at Bookish at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. The Arkansas Razorback volleyball team is now the only SEC team still undefeated in conference play. Arkansas defeated Alabama in Barnhill Arena last night 3-1. That win, coupled with a Tennessee loss earlier yesterday, gives Arkansas sole possession of first place in the SEC. Arkansas will next be at number 10 Tennessee Friday night, then at number 13 Kentucky Sunday afternoon. And the 21st-ranked Arkansas men's cross-country team will head into this month's SEC Championships after winning the pre-nationals race in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday. The 19th-ranked Razorback women finished second in their race. The SEC Championships will be in Columbia, South Carolina on Friday, October 27th.
This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large, and like most Mondays, we're going to spend some time with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Unlike most Mondays, our visit this week is an encore airing of a previous conversation. Our schedules couldn't align this week, so we're going to share again a segment from earlier this year, recorded in March. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon, who's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. And now I'm here. And now you're here. Yes. Uh, before we talk about this week's subject, let's just remind people about these archives and, and why they're with the Pryor Center. Well, I uh, worked at KTV in Little Rock, the ABC station, for 31 years. I uh, was news director for the last 10 and during that time, we reached an agreement with retired Senator Pryor and the university to donate 26,000 hours of film and videotape, uh, which made up the KATV News Weather and Sports Archive. So I wound up here, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm in the process of digitizing and organizing, and uh, with the help of Tyson, uh, Barbara Tyson and the Tyson Foods Foundation. And uh, so you and I go in and dip into this every, every week, and we find some sort of topic or person or news event from the past. And this week's touches on Fort Smith, El Dorado, Fayetteville, just about the entire state. That's true. Melvin Bell. Mm -hmm. Interesting story. Uh, in a way, a tragic story. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate to give it this title, but it's almost like a riches to rags story. Uh, excuse the... Mm -hmm. The, I guess, flippant uh, use of terms. Uh, but uh, Melvin Bell, if, if you've never heard of him, and there's probably a good chance you haven't, Fort Smith native, graduated from the University of Arkansas here in 1960 mm -hmm. with uh, an engineering degree. And he started a wildly successful company that was just sort of under the radar because it's not some sort of flashy thing that you know an, an engineer came up with but it was called ensco uh environmental services company and it was in el dorado and well my neighbor hugh <laughs> Ernest um worked for ensco in the mid 80s up to the about 1990 and he sort of explains what ensco was they had uh, reconstructed if you will an old incinerator that had been in an oil an oil plant on a refinery and they had began they got the first contract to burn pcbs and other hazardous waste in in the united states so they were the only ones they were the, the only ones for a period of time okay so he had a corner on the market he had a corner on the market and this made money. This was a, a lot of money. Yeah, it was a very business. lucrative business um, because uh, he was talking about these PCBs. Mm -hmm. It was related to dioxin, uh, carcinogen, uh, and the utilities. They, they were in transformers, right. and they had to be cleaned up. They couldn't be used anymore, and they had until – sometime in the mid-90s 
to clean it all up. And like you said, he was on the cutting edge of having permission to incinerate this stuff. So um, the business was booming. And um, I got in touch with an old friend and colleague of Bell's. His name is Bill Priakis. And uh, he describes it this way. So that's what started it all and uh, was incredibly successful. I understand he made a lot of money doing that. It was just uh, unbelievable. And uh, they did an underwriting and uh, a local broker there helped him uh, prepare the material to go public. And once that happened, uh, uh, it was off to the races. Uh, I can't remember how many times the stock split, but uh, it made a lot of people wealthy who were early investors. The stock was splitting, it was growing, and so uh, Bell and others made a fortune. So what do you do with, with all this money? Well, one of the first things he did was give a very generous gift to here, the University of Arkansas. His alma mater. Yes, uh, the engineering department, and uh, it was more than $3 million. I believe he gave it in Insco stock, uh, but you've heard of the Bell Engineering Building. Sure, it was being—I remember when they broke ground in the early 80s for it. That's right, yeah. and uh, it uh, they, they dedicated it in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. and— it, believe it or not, the Bell Engineering Building is not named for Melvin Bell. So Dan Ferreter, our friend, who was chancellor at the two-time, time. Two-time former chancellor. Yes. Yeah. Um, he keeps coming back. <laughs> um, but he uh, was chancellor, and he tells this story. Melvin was very interesting. He said, I don't want the building named after me. He said... Everything I owe, I owe to my parents, my mother and father. And so if there's going to be anything named, I want the center to be named after my mother and father. And so the Bell Engineering Center is not named after Melvin Bell, who made the generous gift, but it's made for Melvin Bell's parents. And, you know, if you look at the rest of Melvin's life, he, he tried to give back to Arkansas. You know that walkway in the center of Bell Engineering when you enter? That used to be a road. There Dan was, was telling me about that. That was a road that went through campus, not just like a service road, but that was like a road that all Fayetteville people could use. And if you walk into Bell Engineering, that middle pathway well, is the original footprint of that road. That's right. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> 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 all right. So he's rolling in dough mm-hmm. and uh, makes this uh, gift and then he starts buying things uh, businesses enterprises things like that and he was very interested in um, hot springs and renovating hot springs um, he and he started with bathhouse row which at the time was horrible. People were wondering if it was going to survive. That's right. It was in disrepair. They were were empty. They Mm -hmm. were closed, all in disrepair. I remember um, I shoot still photography sometimes, and 
they didn't even have them locked up mm-hmm. because I walked inside one of them. And great photography uh, opportunities in there. But they were just uh, falling apart, falling down. But he made an agreement with the city of Hot Springs that if they took one of the bathhouses, renovated it, and made it a visitor center, that he would take five others and fix them up. That visitor center is still there. That's right. And the other ones have opened. There's a brewery and Mm -hmm. different things. One is a a spa or a a place where you can still get a massage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's – I think he was a little ahead of of his time to do that. But here's an interview from the archives from 1986 when uh, some city dignitaries and folks are touring – the bathhouses, and uh, this is Melvin Bell. I'm not sure that we looked at it as a, a, a large profit-making enterprise. Uh, I think it's more of a, of a labor uh, to just uh, that we think it's important to the people of the state of Arkansas and, and to the city of Hot Springs. He put more money into Hot Springs. <laughs> he did, and I, I think that's could be an accurate way to describe it. I mean, it wasn't necessarily smart spending. He uh, he bought Magic Springs, the amusement park. Which, again, this was an entity time, that was really, is it going to survive? Well, and at the time, I don't know if you remember, it was called Tragic Screams, yeah. I believe. That yeah. was the nickname for it. Because it was run down. It wasn't doing well. And, uh, well, sh- shortly after the purchase, he... There was a little town meeting, and he was uh, addressing some of the residents of Hot Springs. They were very excited. We have a fairly uh, extensive plan that involves not just the uh, acreage there, but uh, other acreage as well that's contiguous to the park. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time going around looking at theme parks and trying to get some ideas. It's really not my area of expertise, as you well can appreciate. But uh, I did, at this same time in Atlanta, buy a... If you're not familiar with it, it won't mean it. It's a Philadelphia toboggan carousel. It's one of the original carousels with the wooden horses, which we hope to move down there. I kind of love this approach. Like, you've made a lot of money pretty quickly, and you're not buying a yacht. You're giving it to your alma mater. That's true. You're refurbishing, you know, a major part of Central Avenue and Hot Springs. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing, but it wasn't evil. Right, it right. Was, he, you know, he, his heart was right, in the right place. Right. And, but he admitted, even in that speech, <laughs> I don't know anything about amusement parks, but I bought this really cool right. carousel. Which, and it got applause, a, yeah. It was probably a fortune. But um, Not all amusement park purchases paid off. No. No, as a matter of fact, he also bought Dogpatch USA. Yeah. So he had that for a while, and it course never went anywhere it's starting to now we think we don't know for sure what's going to be there right another thing he bought in hot springs was the belvedere country club right and he made extensive uh improvements and renovations uh there and i found in the archives uh our late great sports director paul eels was talking to uh it was either a pro or someone who was doing the designs uh, 
of the golf course, and this is what he had to say. The changes that we made on the front nine are kind of the, the 1990 look, or 80 look, 90 look, and uh, the Pete Dye look with all the mounds, the fairway bunkers, the trap bunkers, the pot bunkers, grass bunkers, and such like that. Uh, uh, the, the golfing public will be pleasantly surprised when they come over and see the golf facility. And the holes have been changed around. At least you've, you've turned it around, they'll play a little bit different too. Right, the, the numbers of the holes have been changed back to what they were back about 15 years ago. Uh, as far as the layout of the hole, not much of that has been changed other than the, than the green areas and a few new tee box areas. You've got all these things, and you mentioned he bought Dog Patch. Um, oh, he also bought uh, Fairfield Bay in Heber Springs, <laughs> which included the Red Apple Inn. Right. He yeah. had a lot of money. That's true. <laughs> Buying amusement parks in Fairfield Bay and, yeah. Yeah, they were kind of all over the place. Yeah. And, well, I remember being from Little Rock, there was a place down kind of near where the River Market is now, mm -hmm. long before the River Market, but downtown near the river. Uh, he, The old um, Little Rock Furniture Company warehouse he bought – and his wife was interested in antiques, so the whole first floor was full of antiques. I mean, really high-end, entire, like, giant wooden bars that you might have seen, you know, turn of the century mm -hmm. uh, saloon or something. Oh, wow. And then upstairs was a restaurant and a music venue that I saw some great shows there, uh, Branford Marsalis and Matt Guitar Murphy. And mm -hmm. all, he would bring all these people down, but it was called SOB, the and Shrimp for, and Oyster Bar. And for a time, it was like it was the place. Oh, absolutely. It was yeah. Yes, yes. But, um, you know, I think uh, maybe he thought he had the Midas touch. And that because of the success of Ensco, that he could do no wrong. But uh, here's his friend and colleague, Bill Priakis, and this is how he sums it up. Melvin was a, as a great friend and, as I say, a visionary and an entrepreneur. And, and he really, I think, in, in my judgment, it, he got to the point where uh, if someone showed him something that he had a great interest in, he really felt in his heart of hearts that all it took was for him to acquire it and then it would magically uh, become more successful. And of course the key ingredient that was missing in all of that was to bring management into uh, each one of these ventures that uh, could help it succeed. And that's where, in my, in my judgment, and, and people might argue with me, but that was where, that was Melvin's great failing is that he didn't, he didn't back up those purchases with, with, with a business plan. And in many cases, as a result, they, they failed. Now, what's happening with Ensco during all of this? Well, it's still cranking along, but he tries to expand it mm -hmm. and actually has signed contracts with either counties or cities. And there are I believe a couple in Canada, a few here in the United States, and uh, one of them was outside of Phoenix. And Hugh Ernest, who used to work for him, also did – well, part of what he did was PR. And so he would go to these areas, and, man, he did not get a warm reception. And he describes um, – 
one of his experiences, and this is outside of Phoenix, and there were some fireworks. Late 80s, Greenpeace was very successful, and they sent over a very competent group of, of individuals who service uh, to gather protests against the site in, uh, in, in out of Phoenix, about 40 miles out of Phoenix. We had a memorable public hearing uh, outside of Phoenix, uh, and Greenpeace showed up, and as I suspicion, because I have a lot of skill in how you handled permitting through state and federal regulation agencies, uh, they stood up and protested when the re when the when the hearing started. The people there, who were from the state and the feds, gave up. By the mid nineties, uh, all the PCBs had to have been destroyed. Your market is there. It goes. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I think Dan Ferreter mentioned he wanted to give back to Arkansas. And his old Fort Smith friend, Bill Priakis, sort of echoed uh, that, that, you know, his, his heart was in the right place, but things just didn't turn out as uh, Melvin Bell had envisioned. I think so many of the of the ventures that he started were, were draining off cash, and, and uh, many of them, you know, were, it was very bad i think in hot springs that didn't work out well at all uh, and, and and he just uh when he passed he was uh essentially broke as far as far as i knew so it's really tragic and uh because he was such he was a, he was a fun guy too a, a great guy to be around and just uh uh, uh you know a bon vivant in in many many ways and uh I miss him. He was uh, he was he was a character. I think you said at the beginning this was a fascinating story, and you're right. It's this yeah. sort of roller coaster. I mean, a meta metaphor perhaps because he liked amusement parks, but it was this roller <laughs> yeah. coaster of right I, of fortune. You know, um, not knowing him, uh, just mm -hmm. covering him. I've never even had a conversation with him. But um, oh, by the way, he was in the Good Suit Club. Ah. With all the big business, of course he was. So, of course he was. You know, and and I looked in the archives, and his name never came up before he started buying all these things. Hmm. He was flying under the radar when he had Insco, and even with the controversy of you know dioxin and PCBs and uh, incinerating uh, hazardous waste. There was nothing in the archives until wow. he started this public public buying, and and I think maybe his heart was bigger than his bank account. And there are worse things, right? Right, yeah. but he, you know, he kind of reminds me of Jennings Osborne. And I'll have to tell you, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in Little Rock, so maybe that's a, a subject for another. Maybe visit because we should profile here's what I Jennings know, Osborne. Here's what I know about Jennings Osborne. Okay. And I think it's what a lot of people in Northwest Arkansas know: Christmas lights. Sure. And 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 that's the end of the story. And we for covered us. that well because he was taken to court by all of his mm -hmm. neighbors, and it was such <laughs> a television type story. Yeah. A million Christmas lights that allegedly you could see from space. Um, 
<laughs> I'm just imagining someone who's listening to us who didn't grow up in Arkansas and they're like, why are we talking about well, Christmas lights now? Well, so we'll have to do a Jennings. We're going to have to do yes. a, a whole segment yeah. on Jennings because here was another person who who had a huge heart, wanted to give to people, and did mm-hmm. uh, almost to a fault. All right. This has been a good one. Another good one. Well, thank you. We'll be back next hey, week. I try. You do very well. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> So many thank yous to hand out today. We had a great time Friday night at Black Apple Cidery in downtown Springdale for our membership appreciation party. Congratulations to the All-Stars and Coffee Talk for finishing first and second, respectively, in our trivia contest. It went to double overtime. Thanks, everyone, who came out. And thank you to Rendition Coffee and Cocktails, as well as Sugar Apple Baking Company, for making last Thursday morning's member coffee gathering at the Carver Center for Public Radio so much fun. And I'd also like to thank the Hispanic Women of Arkansas for including me as part of their annual conference Friday at the Jones Center. This year's conference titled, Imagining the Future, Anything is Possible. My thanks also to the panelists who were with me for a discussion about voting and voter participation that took place at the conference Friday morning. Speaking of voting, your opportunities to view the Smithsonian exhibit Voices and Votes, Democracy in America on the John Brown University campus, dwindling. The exhibit closes Friday. The night before it opened, JBU and KUAF combined to host a public discussion about voting and democracy. That night, I asked the panelists what we might not know or understand about voting. Today, we'll hear two of the panelists' responses to that question and then share the other responses on tomorrow's show. Here are the answers from Dan Bennett, Associate Professor of Political Science and Assistant Director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JBU, and Delia Hawk, Arkansas State Representative for District 17. I grew up in Oregon, and uh, my first uh, time voting was in the early 2000s. And uh, in Oregon, for a number of years at that point, was exclusively vote by mail. Uh, So there were no physical polling places in Oregon. You couldn't go into a polling place and cast your ballot. Uh, And to me, that was great. It was convenient. You got your ballot in the mail. You could fill it out over dinner. It was fantastic. Uh, But then having lived in several states since then, realized, you know, not only do different states obviously have different regulations and rules, but also it's a different experience to physically go cast a ballot and uh, can be especially meaningful for people who are, are really appreciating that experience for the first time. So just recognizing, too, that states have their own processes that are so very different from each other, uh, even though we're all part of the same country. So this last session, we had a bill come up that some people in above 75 and above wanted to change a law that mandates anyone to have jury duty. So if you are a citizen, you are mandated to serve on a jury by a certain age until you're dead. Not really till you're dead, there's a certain age. But, but the, but the uh, person was asking, and she came and was very compelling. She was say, said, please don't make it mandatory. 75 years and over, if they want to serve, they can. If they don't want to serve, they don't have to. Can you make that? you know, possible. And it was like, well, that sounds really like very reasonable. And then we were in committee thinking about, okay, we're going to lose all the wisdom of all these folks that are 75 years and older, right? 
and we need them to be on juries. So we can't let them get out of their duty. If they are a citizen and they have the right to vote, they should serve. We went back and forth. That did not pass out a committee, but it came back. You can bring your bill back if you want to and try it again. So they brought it back and tried it again and it passed out a committee. And then it got to the House floor and then it was voted down. And they brought it back so that we could vote it out of the House and to the Senate and guess what, it didn't pass. Because we want and need those 75-year-old people on the jury. So the things we don't know about voting, we don't know what the perfect age is. For a long time it was 21 and over or 18. And when we go going back and forth, I think we have a, political, a presidential candidate saying that it should be 25 and above. Anybody here think it should be 25 and above? I hope you go and vote because you can, because at some point they may change that and you won't be able to until you're 25 and older. But there's a lot of things I think we don't know about voting and about, I guess what, if you have a right, you also have a responsibility. And we do have a lot of responsibilities for our country. And also if you don't vote, uh, you don't get to complain about you know, who represents you. So if you want to complain, you gotta go vote. Comments from a public discussion about voting and democracy that took place on the John Brown University campus last month. It was a collaboration between JBU and KUAF. We heard from Delia Hawk, state representative for District 17, and Dan Bennett, associate professor of political science and assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JBU. Tomorrow, the answers provided to that question from the other panelists, Chris Seawood and Emil Tenorio. The Smithsonian exhibit, Voices and Votes, Democracy in America, on the John Brown University campus, remains on display to the public through Friday. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. Born April 15, 1936 in Auburn in Jackson County, Frank Otis Frost became known as one of the premier Delta Blues harmonica players of the latter part of the 20th century with his talent sought for albums, motion pictures, and in concert around the world. Remembered as a harmonica player, Frank Frost learned singing and some piano early on in church. He also played guitar and later made keyboard another one of his main instruments. After graduating high school, Frank Frost began playing music with Sam Carr, and Carr would remain on and off again partners with Frost for the next half century. Sam Carr, now considered among the premier Delta Blues drummers, is the son of slide guitar great Robert Nighthawk. Both father Nighthawk and son Carr were born in Helena. Frost and Carr also performed as Nighthawks. Meanwhile, Frost was influenced on harmonica by another Helena resident, Sonny Boy Williamson II, also known as Rice Miller. Frank Frost recorded one of only eight albums issued by Sam Phillips' record label, Phillips International. Phillips launched the label in 1957, feeling his son record label in Memphis had become too associated with rock and roll. Before Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Arkansas's Johnny Cash, Charlie Rich and the like, Sun Records had gotten its start recording blues music in the early 1950s. I saw a place for Frank Frost, Sam Phillips later said, even though he was the most bluesy thing I had recorded in years. 
Phillips died in 2003. The Phillips International record label didn't last, but Frost continued recording and playing the blues, most often with Sam Carr. Frost and Carr, with guitarist Big Jack Johnson, formed the Jelly Roll Kings in the 1970s. This blues supergroup would exist off and on over three decades. The 1979 Jelly Roll Kings album cover, Rockin' the Juke Joint Down, shows the trio in front of the Red Top Lounge in Clarksdale, Mississippi. The Jelly Roll Kings were longtime house band at Clarksdale's Red Top Lounge, also known as Smitty's. Heard here is Frank Frost with the Jelly Roll Kings, produced by Little Rock native Robert Palmer with So Lonesome. Oh, I'm going away, baby. Well, I'll be back some old day. Opening the program and that album, 1997's Off Yonder Wall, is Frank Frost Blues. Despite the song title, Frank Frost Blues was sung by Big Jack Johnson. Frank Frost's reputation as an authentic Delta Blues musician solidified through the 1970s and 1980s, even as blues music's popularity rose and fell. In the mid-1980s, Frank Frost's fame had spread far enough that he was asked to contribute to the Hollywood movie Crossroads. Although it is a coming-of-age vehicle for actor Ralph Macchio, best known as the Karate Kid, there are some good musical moments in the 1986 film Crossroads. There are several additional songs which are not heard in the film in the Crossroads movie soundtrack, produced by Ry Cooter with help from Little Rock native Jim Dickinson. Frank Frost appears in the film and on the soundtrack. By the 1990s, interest in the blues was again on the rise. Frank Frost, based out of his Helena apartment near his girlfriend's restaurant, Eddie May's Cafe, emerged in blues circles as a living legend. Gigs for Frost could mean in other countries or Japanese television as often as a Delta juke joint. The ever-growing popularity of the annual King Biscuit Blues Fest in Helena, renamed in 2005 as the Arkansas Blues and Heritage Fest, helped raise Frost statewide and international profile. But by 1999, at age 63, Frank Frost's health had deteriorated. Scheduled to perform at that year's October Festival with longtime partner Sam Carr, Frost was only able to wave to the crowd from his wheelchair. Four days later, on October 12, 1999, Frank Frost died of congestive heart failure in his apartment. Frost is buried in Helena's Magnolia Cemetery, and the street in Helena where Frost lived is now called Frank Frost Street. Here is Frank Frost of Jackson County with his early 1960s Phillips International single, Jelly Roll King. Thank you. 
Frank Otis Frost of Auvergne in Jackson County with Jelly Roll King, his early 1960s Phillips International single. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us. Something new is opening at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art this week in Bentonville. More parking. Wednesday, the first phase of a new parking complex next to the museum on Museum Way will open. But this is Crystal Bridges, so there will definitely be art included. A 21-foot-tall structure titled Congruence is part of the space, created by artists known as Hibikozo. That's short for the Hyperspace Bypass Construction Zone. This structure will illuminate at night, and it will serve as a function, uh, it will serve as a beacon on the facility's skyscape. For several years, the Arkansas Period Poverty Project tried to work alongside lawmakers to pass legislation that would remove the sales tax for period products. After many failed attempts, they've decided to try a different approach. Being able to go the ballot measure route, I think, is a really great opportunity because it allows us to get into the communities and talk with voters and, you know, be able to share this with them and be able to raise awareness at the community level about period poverty and why it's important. That story and much more tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Hi, I'm Lowell Taylor. And I'm Dustin McGowan. And we're the host of The R Word, a podcast about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. On the next episode, we listened to a sermon called What to White People is Juneteenth that I gave at Grace Church in June. And then our guest Betty Wilton and I will discuss what we heard and what we hope from Lowell's sermon. You can listen to The R Word for free on KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcast. The R Word is one of a handful of podcasts we produce here at KUAF, including Undisciplined, which is a partnership with the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and KUAF, Points of Departure, uh, which is also a partnership we have with the University of Arkansas, I Am Northwest Arkansas, hosted by Randy Wilburn, Resilient Black Women, District 3, and, of course, Kyle, you can get Ozarks at Large in podcast form as well. We keep you up to date with many of these podcasts. You can hear samples on Ozarks at Large. In fact, uh, most Tuesdays we have a sample of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn. Tomorrow we'll do that because tomorrow is Tuesday. Yeah. And uh, it's about affordable housing. Mm. And that It's we'll a topic hear. that doesn't seem to be going away no. here in this region. No. Well... Right. And that will um, we'll hear a bit of that. But again, you can get all of these podcasts by going to KUAF.com. As Matthew mentioned, you can get Ozarks at Large in podcast form, the Monday through Friday versions as well, usually up and ready by mid-afternoon or so. Yep. Yep. You can find all of those at KUAF.com. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Jack Travis, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Our director of community engagement at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Matthew produced the show today in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. And once again, thanks everyone who came out Friday night. Packed house mm-hmm. at um, 
at uh, Black Apple Cidery, and it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun with the trivia contest, and handed out some recognition to longtime supporters of KUAF. We'll do membership appreciation again next week and look for us to be maybe in your town sooner rather than later with some more fun stuff. That's right. The trivia ended in a tiebreaker. Oh, yeah. In that, I assume you were prepared for that. Oh, yes, yes. And now I can ask – yes, I was because um, – you know, my secret desire has always been to be a game show host. So, Kyle, I don't think it's a secret anymore. <laughs> that's a good point. So the question at the end, the tie-breaking question, um, one team got to answer first. And if they got it wrong, the next team that was tied got two answers. If they missed that, it went back to two mm. more for sort of the, like that. The question was, what letter starts more United States president's last names than any other? J? That was, I think that was the second guess. Okay. It's not J. W? It's not W. T? It's not T. Um, there's several more letters in the alphabet, and I can't right. think of them. H. H. Oh, sure. Harding, Hayes, Hoover, Harrison, Harrison. Right, there's two Harrisons. There, there were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Benjamin and William Henry. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we went to double overtime with that, and it was a lot of Fun. So, yeah, we're going to do it again somewhere. But thanks to everyone at uh, Black Apple Cidery and everyone that showed up. Uh, it was a fun night. It was. It was. Uh, Kyle, if you needed some – I know that you're a summer guy. But if mm-hmm. you needed some inspiration with fall coming, uh, it's it's here. It's yeah, it chilly is. outside. Uh, I've been informed that peak fall foliage will be the week of October 30th here in northwest Arkansas. That seems like a good autumnal time, right? Last few days of October, first mm-hmm. few of November. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't mind autumn. I just hate that it always hangs out with winter. Mm-hmm. Wherever autumn comes, winter is going to show up eventually, and I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah. Well, if you are a big fan of fall, the week of October 30th is great time, especially driving down I-49, yeah. going down towards Fort right. Smith, looking through there. You're going to enjoy yourself. We'll be with you tomorrow. Here on Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. The Momentary in Bentonville presents Wu-Tang Clan, Saturday, October 28th. This multi-platinum Grammy Award-nominated hip-hop group will perform live, outdoors on the Momentary Green, as part of the Momentary's Live on the Green series. Tickets at themomentary.org.